Welcome to a special episode of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In this episode, I am revisiting the passage in which a Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal his son or servant. The Greek word can be translated either way, son or servant. The first time I covered this passage was in episode 16, but I was talking with a friend who had some very good questions about it and got me to thinking that there is a lot in that passage, and I went through some of the material rather quickly in episode 16. So in this episode, I'm not going to introduce anything new, really. I'm just going to explain a couple of things that I mentioned really quickly the first time. I'm going to explain a little bit more about the liberation feast that Jesus refers to in this passage. We'll look at a couple of the texts from Isaiah that talk about it. And then I'll get into how the image of the feast evolved into one of Israel feasting on the empires. And then how in the Gospel of Matthew, that feast turns into the Eucharist. Jesus' Last Supper with His Disciples. My name is still Bert Newton, and this is a special episode of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. read the text, Matthew 8, 5-13. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed, and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such great faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will take their places at the banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Now the main thing in this text is that a Roman centurion submits to Jesus' authority and even places faith in Jesus, faith in a Jewish peasant movement leader, faith in an Israelite peasant movement leader, which is tantamount to pledging allegiance to this Israelite peasant movement leader, which would be a treasonous act against Rome. And if you want more on that, then go back to episode 16, where I explain that more. So that's a lot right there, but not the main focus of this episode. What I want to talk about in this episode is the liberation feast that Jesus mentions 
when talking about the centurion's extraordinary faith. When Jesus talks about this eschatological feast, he says literally that people will come from east and west to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But sit is really an inadequate translation and not the one the NRSV uses. The Greek uses the word that means recline, to recline. This word is used a total of six times in the New Testament, and all but one of those times, it is used to mean reclining or sitting for a meal. The NRSV provides an exceptionally descriptive translation, rendering it, will take their places at the banquet. Will take their places at the banquet. In the Greek, that's all one word. Will take their places at the banquet. The NRSV translates it this way because the translators are aware that Jesus is referring to the great liberation feast, the great liberation banquet spoken of in the prophets. It's a feast or banquet celebrating the liberation of Israel, the end of oppression, and it involves resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead, so a feast with them would require them to be resurrected. This is a feast or a banquet at the resurrection. To understand how the feast came to take that form, we have to trace it through the prophetic and apocalyptic literature of Israel. So let's do that. In episode 16, I referenced Isaiah 25. Let's look at that text. It's Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. It reads, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the covering that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So in this passage from Isaiah, you notice that there is a feast on a mountain that seems to be a celebration of something, perhaps the end of death, because God swallows up death forever. So right here we have two elements of the events spoken of in Matthew that we might recognize. One, it's a feast. Two, the end of death, which looks a lot like the resurrection theme in Matthew. Or is it? We'll come back to that. Now, to us in the 21st century, this Isaiah text, in isolation, doesn't really look like a liberation feast for Israel. It looks like a celebration feast for all people celebrating the end of death. But this passage is not in isolation. It is located in the long book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is concerned with Israel's liberation from foreign oppression, as well as economic justice within Israel. Those are the themes that Isaiah comes back to over and over and over again. And if we read the passage closely, we find that this passage is also concerned with Israel's liberation. It refers to this mountain, which is specifically Mount Zion, Jerusalem. If you go back and read what precedes this passage, you find that it is talking about 
Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is a feast in Jerusalem. And the passage also says that God will take away the disgrace of God's people. God's people in the Hebrew scriptures are the people of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that all the other nations aren't involved in this feast. They clearly are. It is a feast for all people or all nations. The Hebrew word connotes a people group or a nation. Often in the prophets, and specifically in Isaiah, Israel's liberation is also the liberation for the whole world, in that the whole world is liberated through Israel. To give a clearer picture of that, let's look at an earlier text in Isaiah with the same theme, liberation for the nations on Mount Zion. Let's read Isaiah 2, 2-4. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Notice that this is redemption for the whole world, a vision of peace, the end of war for all the nations. Through Israel, on Israel's mountain, the nations stream to the house of the God of Jacob, to the temple in Jerusalem, to the God of Israel, to learn the ways of the God of Israel, to learn Torah. Peace, the end of war, the nations are saved through Israel. Now, remember in the passage in chapter 25, it said that God will swallow up death forever, right? Some scholars think that's a reference to the end of war, as in Isaiah 2, not the end of death itself, literally. They think that death in this passage is code for war and maybe oppression. God swallows up the death that comes from war and oppression forever. But whether we interpret the swallowing up of death forever as the end of war and oppression or the end of literally death itself, these themes get all bound up together in the prophetic and apocalyptic literature of ancient Israel. Because whether or not Isaiah 25 is referring to the end of death literally, the later apocalyptic literature does start talking about resurrection as the final liberation from foreign oppressors. We find this early on in Ezekiel 37, where it is still a metaphor, where Ezekiel is instructed to prophesy to the bones of dead people who come to life, and we are told that they represent Israel resurrected, resurrected from its devastation by foreign empires. And then Daniel 12 speaks of the liberation of Israel as a literal resurrection, as does 2 Maccabees 7. Resurrection comes to be understood as the final victory of Israel 
over its oppressors. So, we have liberation involving feasting, inclusion of the nations, the Gentiles, peace between the nations, and resurrection. All of this we see in what Jesus says in his encounter with the centurion. Feasting, inclusion of the nations, the Gentiles, peace between the nations, and resurrection. And we see this coming together in the gospel story as a whole, as Jesus starts a movement of peasants and social outcasts in Israel, going first to what he calls the lost sheep of Israel, but then expanding to Gentiles, as we see in this encounter with the centurion, but also when he goes into the region of the Gadarenes, and when he goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus' movement starts in Israel, but goes out to the whole world. And it is a movement of peace and healing, feeding people, at one point, on a mountain. The second feeding, the feeding of the 4,000, is on a mountain, a feast on a mountain, just like in Isaiah 25. And the whole story ends in resurrection. The gospel story fulfills this prophetic vision of liberation with the liberation banquet, the liberation feast. Now, sometimes the prophets speak of Israel's liberation as Israel becoming the dominant power in the earth and ruling over other nations. Israel becomes the ruling imperial power. We see this even in Isaiah. Isaiah 60, 5-10 reads, The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall be acceptable on my altar, and I will glorify my glorious house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you, foreigners shall build up your walls. Then Isaiah 61, 5, Strangers shall tend and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. So you hear this vision of Israel's liberation involving dominating and subjugating other nations. And perhaps you also heard that bit about gold and frankincense. Matthew's gospel very cleverly works that in. See episode four of this podcast series. But the prophets sometimes speak of Israel's liberation coming through Israelite empire and subjugation of other nations. Eventually, the vision of the liberation feast becomes a vision of Israel feasting on the empires that oppressed it. Empires are often portrayed as beasts. I've covered this in previous episodes. Both Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 portray oppressive empires as beasts. Two other beastly images for empire in the Bible are those of the beasts Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth is a land monster and Leviathan a sea monster or a sea dragon. And the liberation feast evolves into one in which Israel feasts 
on the carcasses of Behemoth and Leviathan. We first see this begin to happen in Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel 29, 2-5 reads, Mortal, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon sprawling in the midst of its channels, saying, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws, and make the fish of your channels stick to your scales. I will draw you up from your channels, with all the fish of your channels sticking to your scales. I will fling you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your channels. You shall fall in the open field, and not be gathered or picked up. To the animals of the earth and to the birds of the air, I have given you as food. Egypt is portrayed as a dragon. Leviathan is the sea dragon. Often biblical texts will speak of Leviathan without using the name and just use the term dragon. The image of Leviathan being devoured by wild animals may just be a colorful and descriptively violent image of the demise of imperial Egypt. But it may also be that the animals represent smaller nations with marauding armies like that of the later Attila the Hun or the Gauls or the Visigoths who attacked Rome. We see the same sort of scene again in Ezekiel 32, 2-4. Mortal, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion among the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You thrash about in your streams, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul your streams. Thus says the Lord God, In an assembly of many peoples, I will throw my net over you, and I will haul you up in my dragnet. I will throw you on the ground, in the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the air to settle on you, and I will let the wild animals of the whole earth gorge themselves on you. So imperial Egypt is the dragon, Leviathan, and becomes a feast for wild animals, which may be smaller nations with marauding armies. Then in Ezekiel 39, 17-20, we get this. As for you, mortal, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every kind and to all the wild animals. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of goats, of bulls, all of them fatted calves of Bashan. You shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with warriors of all kinds of soldiers, says the Lord God. Princes and warriors and horses and chariots become food for wild animals who are summoned to gather. Here the prophet calls it a feast, a sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. The wider context of this passage in Ezekiel shows that it is about not only the liberation of Israel from foreign empires, but the actual destruction throughout the land of Israel of foreign invaders. The foreign invaders are killed and become a sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel.
The description of this as a sacrificial feast of flesh and blood will figure into how it evolves into the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples, because that is a supper during the Feast of Passover, which is a sacrificial meal. But let's get back to the prophets. So we have Egypt portrayed as Leviathan, becoming a feast for wild animals, then foreign invaders becoming a sacrificial feast for wild animals on the mountains of Israel. Then we get to the apocalyptic literature. There is this ancient work that scholars call Fourth Ezra, and it somehow got embedded in Second Esdras, which is the book that made it into the Bibles that include the Apocrypha. I'm not sure how that happened, but if you find a citation for Fourth Ezra, look for it in Second Esdras if your Bible includes that book. Fourth Ezra is an apocalyptic work from the late first century that talks in coded apocalyptic language about the liberation of Israel from Rome. Rome is called Babylon and is also symbolized by an eagle, a Roman military symbol. Part of this work retells the story of creation, and while retelling the story, mentions the beasts Behemoth and Leviathan. Speaking of the fifth day of creation, 4th Ezra 6, 49-52 reads, Then you kept in existence two living creatures, the one you called Behemoth, and the name of the other Leviathan. And you separated one from the other, for the seventh part, where the water had been gathered together, could not hold them both. And you gave Behemoth one of the parts that had been dried up on the third day to live in it, where there are a thousand mountains. But to Leviathan you gave the seventh part, the watery part, and you have kept them to be eaten by whom you wish and when you wish. Fourth Ezra is written to assure its ancient Jewish audience that despite the apparent dominance by Rome, God is really in control. So it retells the story of creation with God creating the imperial beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan, which are both destined to be eaten at a future time. In a related book called Second Baruch, or The Apocalypse of Baruch, written around the same time as Fourth Ezra, the late 1st or early 2nd century, we read this concerning the final liberation of Israel. And Behemoth shall be revealed from his place, and Leviathan shall ascend from the sea, those two great monsters which I created on the fifth day of creation, and shall have kept until that time. And then they shall be food for all that are left. The earth shall also yield its fruit ten thousand fold, and on each vine there shall be a thousand branches, and each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape produce a core of wine. And those who have hungered shall rejoice. Moreover also they shall behold marvels every day. For wind shall go forth from before me to bring every morning the fragrance of aromatic fruits, and at the close of the day clouds distilling the dew of health. And it shall come to pass at that selfsame time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years, because these are they who have come to the consummation of time. That's 2 Baruch 29, 4-8. We see in the second Baruch passage that Behemoth and Leviathan, which were created on the fifth day, as we were told in 4th Ezra, become food after the liberation of Israel 
a time of abundant food when the hungry rejoice. Hunger having been, of course, a major aspect of imperial oppression. So the liberation feast has evolved into Israel feasting on the imperial beasts. There are other texts, even in the later rabbinic writings, that continue with this theme of feasting on the imperial beasts of Behemoth and Leviathan. In the Gospels, though, the one eaten in the liberation feast is not an imperial beast, but Jesus. The liberation event in the Gospel story is the crucifixion of Jesus followed by the resurrection. Right before the crucifixion, Jesus celebrates a Passover meal with his disciples. Passover is a liberation feast celebrating the liberation of Israel from an imperial oppressor, specifically the Egyptian empire, which Ezekiel portrayed as Leviathan. In the original Passover story, lambs were sacrificed to liberate the people of Israel. So every year at Passover, lambs were sacrificed at the temple for the Passover liberation feast. But Jesus has a final Passover meal with his disciples where he metaphorically becomes the sacrificial lamb. But it is not a substitutionary sacrifice. At this Passover meal, Jesus offers himself, his flesh and blood, as food to his disciples. He is the food of liberation. When they partake of this food, that is metaphorically Jesus' body, they join with Jesus in the way of the cross. They heed his call to pick up their crosses to follow him. In the Gospels, the way to liberation is not the way of domination, becoming the dominant empire that subjugates other nations, but rather it is going the way of the cross. And the cross leads to resurrection, when God swallows up death forever, so that the ultimate weapon of the empires, death, loses its sting. Which is why in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul rhetorically declares, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? My name is Bert Newton, and this has been a special episode of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you.